All right, last week we uh, got through Revelation 18, and afterwards there was a question that I will do a reprise of, which is just exactly what is Babylon? And what we're going to see in Revelation 19 is great rejoicing at the fall of Babylon, so knowing what, what's fallen is useful. Babylon is several things. First off, it's a city. And it's a literal city on the Euphrates River, which has at various times been the center of, of an empire. It's also the location of false worship. And so the, the woman that's been talked about in Revelation, the whore of Babylon, is basically representing false worship, which is physically centered in Babylon. The other thing Babylon is, it represents a mindset of government, is I guess the way to describe it. And the mindset that it represents is basically anti-God, and people belong to the state. There are lots and lots of countries in the world that are of the opinion that people belong to the state. And, and the way I would describe it is the government cares a lot about the people in the same sense that a rancher cares about cattle or a shepherd cares about sheep. You may, in fact, really like your sheep. You may, in fact, you know, have them running around through your yard and you may... You know, scratch them on the belly occasionally, but they still go to market. And the reason that you've got them is still for the economic benefit that they bring to you. Does that so make sense? And so a state that regards people as economic assets, cattle, whatever you want to call it, is a Babylonian system. Because God doesn't regard people that way. God regards people as individuals, and the government that God set up, when God sets up governments, which he has one time that I know of, twice if you count the garden, is a system of individual autonomy with referees. So what you've got is two diametrically opposed systems in how they treat people, and they are both backed by a religion. In the case of Babylon, the religion that backs the Babylonian system is at various times and in various places different names. Sometimes it's Baal, sometimes it's Jupiter, sometimes it's Zeus, sometimes it's Thor, sometimes it's Shiva. I mean, the names that they actually go by are fungible. But what you've got is a, basically a, a, a fleshly world system. And the idea is that the people then belong to the government. God's system is he sets up individuals who are directly in contact with him. And he sets up a system of referees called judges to prevent, prevent unnecessary roughness. Judge means something, means something different than king. Because a king, by nature, is active. In other words, a king's job is to do whatever he can to aggrandize, protect whatever his kingdom. And you remember in, in uh, 
1 Samuel, when Israel decided they wanted a king, what did God say? You won't like it. This is not good. Oh, there are all sorts of things that, that, that will happen. But basically it says, this is not good. And Israel went ahead, and then of course they finally get David, who is in fact a man after God's own heart. And in a sense, he's a model of the Messiah who will be a king. Yeshua will be a king, and, and we've talked about that here in Revelation. But the thing about a judge system is a judge is by nature passive. So a judge just quietly sits there minding his own business, ideally. Ideally. Yeah. Sits there quietly minding his own business until somebody can't get along. Either somebody engages in unnecessary roughness, in which case he gets arrested, or two people can't get along, in which case they come before the judge and the judge makes a decision as to who's right and who's wrong. Or in the case of you know, something like murder or theft or something like that, then you know, to, that st- to the extent of having uh, wardens or sheriffs or bailiffs or whatever you want that will do arrests in those cases. But basically a judge isn't involved in the power game per se like a king is. Okay, now again, in our system, things have gotten, in every system, things have gotten kind of fuzzy. But if you just look at what the words mean, they mean two different things. Okay, and in the Babylonian system, what you have then is a king, and what you also have is basically this idea that the people belong to the king, to the kingdom. Remember when David tried to count the, count the citizens of Israel? What did God say? They ain't yours bucko to count. They're mine. Okay? You don't get to count them. You only get to count what belongs to you. And Israel doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. You don't get to count them. Okay? And it, it's a fundamental difference. And so when we're talking about Babylon here at the end of Revelation, the question is what has been overthrown? What, what, what has gone down, and when we get into Revelation 19 in a minute here, what you're going to see is great rejoicing. And, and the question is, why? What, what's gone down? What I'm trying to explain to you is the, the fundamental difference between Babylonian system and the world, or God's system. And it's a religion, it is a city, and it is a philosophy of government. And the three of them are all bound up together, and they are, by nature, anti-God. All of these world systems do the same thing. They just package it slightly different, and they call it different things, but it's, but it's the same thing. And the fundamental question is, who do you belong to? Okay? And who you belong to has to do with whom you worship. Okay? Because remember, even in Rome, they didn't mess with the Jews because the Jews wouldn't play. The Jews were a religio licita. They were a legal religion, which meant that they didn't have to do any of the Caesar worship, any of that kind of stuff, because simply the Jews wouldn't play. But that's the system that has gone down in Revelation 18. Now, as we read in Revelation 18, it's, it is a literal city that comes under literal destruction in a moment. I don't know where that particular city is, what incarnation of Babylon we're talking about. Okay, Because Babylon, as a system moves and it started in Babylon it went to Rome uh, it's gone to lots of places in the world and there are lots of candidates for Babylon 
today. I don't know which particular one of those candidates is going to be the one that goes down when this finally kicks in. No idea. It could be Brussels. It could be New York. It could be Washington. It could be Rome. It could be Babylon. I don't know. Okay? So just so we understand what we're, what's going on here. All right, so ver- verse 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and the power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Okay, and, and again, people are spiritual beings. Everybody is a spiritual being. And just because you don't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob doesn't mean you don't believe in anything. So every system has got to have a religious or spiritual underpinning in order for it to be a starter. And there's, there's, there's two of them in the world. There's God and everything else. Okay? God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and everything else. And doesn't matter what everything else calls itself, it's everything else. And what's happened here is that religious system, which is backed by Satan, has been taken down. And that's what the rejoicing is over. Because ever since the garden, there has been this conflict between the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Satan's system centered on the world. And that's what went down with Babylon. And the next thing we're going to see is we're going to have the Lamb, Yeshua, take up residence. And, and Satan himself is going to be bound. So let's go ahead and get there. Where am I? Verse 3. Once more they cried out, Alleluia. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God and all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. All right. One other thing. For those of you who have been involved in the United States for any length of time, you notice that one of the things that's going on right now in uh, political and religious circles is tolerance. What that means is you have the people who follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and everybody else. Within everybody else, there's great tolerance. There is no tolerance between those two groups. And so when it says here that God is avenging the blood of his servants, that's what he's talking about back in verse 2. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So what's happened ever since the time of the flood is you have this constant tension between those who serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and those who don't. And we see it over and over again in Scripture. For example, when Daniel and his companions are in Babylon. Daniel ran Babylon. He was part of the system. Until such time as Nebuchadnezzar says, bow down and worship. And then everything came to a stop. And Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to that was not tolerant. You know, we were doing lion's dens and we were throwing people into furnaces and all that kind of stuff. And so what I'm saying is, between the two groups... There is no tolerance. Within the group, there may be. And so the tolerance that you see being espoused today in the United States is tolerance within a group, not between groups. 
hundreds of ways that you see it, posting the Ten Commandments in a courthouse. Can't do that. Because there is no tolerance between God and Satan, okay? Only within the satanic system. Again, did I say that so it made sense? Okay, cool. Verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. Who is the bride? Who is the bride? I have no idea. The closest thing that I can see scripturally is Jerusalem. Now, you can certainly then back off and say, well, Jerusalem represents Israel. I mean, you, you can certainly make that argument. And, and I wouldn't say that you're wrong. It would be a perfectly sound argument to make. It may not be right, but it would be a reasonable argument to make. But as you go through Scripture, and I'm going to take you through some Scriptures as we go, what you're going to find is it's always Zion or Jerusalem. Okay? Scripturally. And what we'll see when the new Jerusalem comes down in, in, in a couple of chapters here, that she is adorned like a bride. She is decked out in jewels. Do you have something? Yeah. No question. Israel is going to be regathered. And that's scriptural. God says so. I have no problem with that whatsoever. I am simply talking about who is the bride. And I spent a considerable amount of time looking at it, and I don't know it always seems to refer to Jerusalem. Okay? Now, as I say, you can make a perfectly logical argument that then says Jerusalem represents Israel. Okay? Just like Washington represents the United States. Or Berlin represents Germany. In other words, you speak of the city, what you're really speaking of then is the people in it. And, and I wouldn't have a problem in the world with that. But just understand that it isn't obvious. Verse 9. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, that's what Ray just said. It's a good deal to be there. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold the testimony of Yeshua. Worship God, for the testimony of Yeshua is the spirit of prophecy. Now, what does that mean? We'll see this again. John, in the presence of these angelic beings, is often gobsmacked with just the majesty of the whole thing, and he hits the deck. And we see that in Scripture. When you have angels showing up among men, the natural reaction is to go down like a sack of rocks. It happens in Daniel. It happens all over the Old Testament. It happens in the New Testament. What's the first thing the angels say when they come to announce the birth of Yeshua? Fear not. And I will gently suggest to you that the reason they have to say fear not is because the natural reaction is to hit the deck. And so John does that twice, at least, in the book of Revelation. And both times, the angelic being picks him up by the scruff of his robe, stands him up and says, no, 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 no. You don't worship me. 
I don't get worshipped. Okay? And we have one angelic being that didn't do that and got himself in a lot of trouble. No, no, I'm serious. And, and, And again, that seems to be the fundamental difference between those who remain in heaven with God and the ones that get finally get cast down to earth is the ones who get cast down to earth want worship. And they specifically want the worship of men. Okay. And again, that goes back to Babylon and, and all that kind of stuff. It, it, it's all wrapped up in, in, the, in the other system, if you will. Now, what is for the testimony of Yeshua is the spirit of prophecy? Okay, that's the first good question. What's testimony? I mean, I think I know, but... What's testimony? It has a technical meaning. What does it mean? Testimony. What's it mean? Give evidence. 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 It's, it's a legal term, and it means evidence. to give evidence. So what, what Stern's interpretation then is that the evidence of Jesus, Yeshua, that thing is the prophetic actions of believers. The, the spirit that's in believers and is living in believers provides testimony of Yeshua. Stern's, Stern's take on it. Okay. The, in, in other words, the behavior of the Holy Spirit in the body of Messiah is evidence of Yeshua. Okay. That's actually not how I read it. It's a perfectly good answer, and if you like that answer, take it and run with it. How'd you read it? What I read it is, their history is prophecy. The testimony of Yeshua, in other words, his actions, historic, are in fact prophetic. Yeah, just like Abraham's actions are prophetic of the nation Israel. Okay, that's how I read it. And again, if you like the other explanation... Run with it. You like mine? You can have that. God knows and I don't. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God, And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All right, this can take a while to unpack. First off, Yeshua riding on the white horse is the answer to the counterfeit white horse back earlier in Revelation. Two things to understand. One is Satan leads God and he leads God with a counterfeit. So whenever God is fixing to do something, because Satan can read prophecy just as well as you can, God is fixing to do something, Satan gets there first with a counterfeit. And what the counterfeit does is gets everything so screwed up that when God finally shows up with the original, everybody says, oh, you ain't going to fool me again. I'm not going to do that. Tried that once and I got burned. It's a phenomenon. And in the book of Revelation, we led off with the white horse riding forth to conquer, remember? 
And what I'm suggesting to you is that's the satanic counterfeit that leads the real thing, which is the king himself coming on the white horse. Second thing. We talked about the sequence in Revelation. And and the perspective of this particular study has been that the events in Revelation are literal, sequential, and understandable. There's nothing obscure about it. You have then seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Seven thunders. Seven thunders, voice of God. Started opening seals immediately upon the ascension. And we are right now, have finished the fourth seal, getting ready to go into the fifth seal. And the seals are by way of establishing his credentials and his ownership of the planet. In other words, the, 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 the scroll that's being opened up is the deed. It's the record copy of the deed to the world. And he is opening the deed and he is saying, that's me, that's me, that's me, this is mine. Seven seals. He has not finished doing that as of this particular moment in time. Once the seals are open and he has established his ownership of the place, the next thing you're going to have is seven trumpets. And the trumpets announce the king. Okay? And those seven trumpets will go out and it will announce the coming of the king. Then you have the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And that is the king taking vengeance on his enemies. Everybody with me so far? All right. So what we have here is, as he's coming forth now, and remember the, the other thing is, we, taught, we said it's literal and sequential, but you can't do literal in a book. So this is, meanwhile, and so you've got the, the structure of the sequence of the, of the three sets of seven, and then you've got the stuff that we've been reading now, which is parenthetical, which correlates with something. You understand what I'm saying? So what you have here is is the taking of possession of the place. The king has shown up, he's taken possession, and he's riding forth on a white horse. Now, we see that prophesied, anybody know where? Genesis? Genesis? Genesis. Genesis. 49. Absolutely. Genesis 49. Verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, tribute comes to him, Messiah comes, different translations. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to a choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine. Revelation 19.13, he has clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Right? His eyes are darker than wine. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And his teeth whiter than milk. And you see here the armies are following him clothed in white linen. Do you suppose an army might be teeth? Mm -hmm. I do. So what you have here is the prophecy over Judah looking forward past, through and past David to David's son when finally David's greater son comes back and this prophecy describes what is happening here in Revelation 19. 
Now, a couple of things. He's got a name that no one knows but him. Verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written. doesn't say where it's written. just has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, why is that important? Go on, and we'll come back to that. Verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Notice that is not the same as the name that is written that nobody knows except him. That's what he's called, the word of God. The armies of heaven rate and find limit, and then on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. That still is not this secret name. What is the first thing that Adam does under God's direction? He names things, doesn't he? And what things does he name? Yes, the things over which he has dominion. So Adam, under God's direction, starts you know naming bugs and flowers and animals and everything else because he has dominion over all of them. Who knows the name that Yeshua has? Only him. Only the one who has dominion, which is himself. And it's an issue of dominion. Okay, it's exactly an issue of dominion. And I, and I didn't actually think of the white stone until you mentioned it. But the idea of getting a white stone with a name that no one knows except the one who gets it, what does that say? Yes, yes. We no longer are under the Babylonian system. Nobody has our name. In other words, your name is between you and God. And it's a white stone, not a black stone. Okay? White stone indicating approval. Very good. I hadn't thought of that. That's great. I like that. All right. On we go. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So this is the king. Now he has been announced. He is coming back, and he's going to kick butt and take names. In other words, he is going to take vengeance on his enemies. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armors gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This has happened before. Not to this magnitude. Small scale. Very small scale. You have a cohort of Roman soldiers come to arrest him. And they say, are you Yeshua? And he says, I am. And what happened to him? They all got knocked on their butts. In other words, the word that came out of his mouth flattened this cohort of Roman soldiers. 
So what he's going to do is he's going to sharpen it up, and instead of being a blunt instrument that just knocks them down, it's going to be a sword that cuts. But it's going to be the same thing. And so what he's shown us is the power of his voice on physical flesh and blood people. Yes. Yes. The question was, this is not a literal iron sword. He is going to speak, and that's what's going to cause destruction. That's correct. Because remember... He spoke the universe into existence. So if he uses his voice that way, his voice will do the purpose for which he speaks. And as I say, he showed us the power of his voice in creation. He showed us on a very small scale the power of his voice as they were trying to arrest him for crucifixion. And now what he's saying is, oh, by the way, I'm going to do it again. Yeah? You got the thing about time of year and location here? I have no doubt that this is going to be during the fall holidays. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, again, he has done everything that he has done on one of the seven feasts. And we don't have anything that he has done specifically in the fall. Back up a minute. We have things God has done in the fall feast, but not Yeshua. Okay? And so Yeshua, you know, I, I believe was born about Sukkot. He was crucified at Passover. He rose on first fruits. He sent the Holy Spirit on Shavuot. And so we're now sitting, waiting for the trumpet that announces the coming of the king. We're awaiting the Day of Atonement when he gets things straight with his people. And then we are awaiting the tabernacling with us. Okay? So the fall feasts are yet to happen. So I have no problem with this being in the fall at all. It doesn't, yeah, I, I think that's very sound. So let's go on to verse, or chapter 20 and get, get into here a little ways since we're on a roll. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones... And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Yeshua and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received its mark on their forehead or on their hands. Notice we've got three different groups of people here. This is not one group that's done all of those things. This is grammatically three different groups of people. In other words, some of them have been beheaded for the testimony of Yeshua. And we'll start at the beginning. I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge had been committed. Period. Got people sitting on thrones. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Yeshua and the word of God. And then I saw those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on, on their forehead and on their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Messiah for a thousand years. So what we are going to be is cosmic bureaucrats, which in my case means God's got a sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So what you have is two resurrection events. You've basically got God raising up a staff. People to do stuff that he needs to have done as he is ruling the place with a rod of iron. 
So you're going to have a group of people that's resurrected or, as would be said in the modern church, raptured. In other words, gathered to him, and their job is going to be essentially bureaucrats for a thousand years while he runs the place. You still got a whole flock of people that have died throughout history, and their status at this point is unknown. We don't know their status at this point. All we know is that they're not needed for the bureaucracy, and so they're not not raised at that point. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Messiah, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So if you make it into the bureaucracy, that's it. You're, you're safe, if you will. Verse 7. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And he didn't even bother to mount his horse on this one. But fire came down from the heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right. One of the questions everybody has to ask is, you got Satan down, you got his foot on his throat, you got his fault. What's the thousand years? What is this? Right? Yeah. Why lock him up for a thousand years? Yeah. Why, yeah. Why, for heaven's sake, let him out again? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll give you my take on it. A couple of things. Thing one is that the purpose of this creation is to be a sorter. And what it is is to, a sorter. It is designed to sort sheep from goats. Wheats from tares. Okay, that's what that's what this place is, is is designed for. We all get born into it, and we all sort ourselves into one kingdom or the other. So the people at the end of the thousand years will be given that same opportunity. Okay, so and and again, you have of course the the cussedness of man, but you also have the influence of Satan, and the question then is going to be, which kingdom are you going to sort yourself into? And that the people that are born during that thousand years will get that opportunity. Okay? Second thing that it does from our perspective is that it disproves Gnosticism and it disproves evolution. Because what you have here is you have the earth under the direct personal rulership of God without the interference of Satan. So if humanism were correct, given the absence of poverty, the absence of pimps, the absence of drug lords, the absence of all these things that people blame for the problems of the world, you get rid of all those things, then everybody should just be getting better and better and better, right? No, I'm I'm very serious. That would be the catechism, if you will, of evolution, and that would be the catechism of liberalism today. That absent all of these things that screw everything up, we should just be getting better and better and better. And what happens at the end is, actually, no, we don't. I don't. Okay? We don't. Gnosticism says the same thing. You said people are going to be learning a whole lot, and I think you're right, because they are going to be learning from God, Yeshua, directly on earth, and they're going to be learning from those 
who were resurrected for the thousand-year reign who have direct experience with Yeshua. And again, Gnosticism says that the more you know, the more holy you are. Right? I mean, it, it, that, that's what the catechism is in Gnosticism. And, and the, the, you know, the more stuff you know, the more levels you rise, the more secrets you learn, the more you know, until finally you get to the point where you are free from this earth and you become a disembodied spirit. And you return, basically, to what you were intended to be, a free spirit not bound by matter. That's Gnosticism in, in 30 seconds or less. Okay? Various flavors of it, various differences, but that's basically what it amounts to. And what this does is it tells us here, that's a lie. That's not true. Okay? Because you have as good a set of conditions as it is possible to have in this creation, and at the end of that time, the nations rise up with armies like the sand of the sea, and they take a run at God. Yep. And as I say, God doesn't even bother to pull his sword this time. He just (laughs) toasts them. That's the two reasons that I see that Satan needs to be stored up in a, in a locker down below until the end of the thousand years. It's for our purposes to give us, draw inferences from, and it's also to give the people at that time the opportunity to make the same choices that we had the opportunity to make. Would somebody like to close in prayer? Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.